we want to share very actionable steps today, and uh, uh, we want to know what you, the questions that you have. So if we could just take a, a few moments, and if you could just raise your hands, and if you have any uh, pressing questions in your mind or questions that you thought about, because uh, as you selected this this session, uh, I'm sure some things come to your mind specifically that, that you want to uh, find some answers for. So if, uh, if you do have questions, would you raise your hands and just, just ask that question, and, and we'll see if we can't cover that in our time here together this morning. Anybody have any questions? Yes. I, um, I'm recently retired. I'm really, um, you know, the situation with heroin overdosing drugs I'm from Dayton in the Miami Valley is at a critical stage, and I'm saying, what is the church doing about it, and how can I get involved? And from what I, the questions I've asked, everything seems to be very an individual church based. Like an individual church has an outreach of whatever denomination they are, but I can't seem to find any kind of really effective outreach um, that's a broad thing. So I'm, I'm exploring and learning what's out there and how we can get involved. Awesome, awesome. Any other questions? Yes. I think there's a fine line between enabling an addict and helping them. And, and sometimes I need help figuring that out. That's good. That's good. Any others? Yeah. It, I think, to me, I, I just had a meeting with Michael Wilson with our staff this week. I'm finding people are doing a great job. How can I help him you know, to me reinvent the wheel? Yeah, I guess, like, we're, what's the best way for us to get resources in our community of people that already have established a program? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, my question kind of went with the resources, because I get a lot of phone calls from friends or whatever. Hey, my son or cousin or grandson is addicted. What yeah. can I do? Where can I get help? And, you know, they're, they're looking more, and I hate to put it this way, but they want more than just someone praying. They want help. Yes. Not the help, but um, they're looking for practical things to help them. So. Yes. One of the... Uh, advantages and, and highest values for uh, events like Synergy is uh, we can be in a room with people of like minds, people with same questions, same concerns. And uh, just that fact, uh, you know, we're, we're here representing many different churches across the, across the state. And so you can find those people that, that have those same concerns and you can make even start making connections here at, at, at Synergy today. And uh, so that, that's a, a tremendous value of this. And also the information that we're going to be sharing, and we'll have time for questions and answers at the end, but, but also uh, we would love to, to send you some, some information via email. And, and uh, if you could, uh, as we go through this, this uh, presentation today, if you, if you could just sign your email up, we're not going to start sending you a bunch of things, but we want to get information to you, and that's the best way that we can do that. Uh, a lot of these questions that, that we've been asking already here this morning uh, will be in some of that information that we send to you, and uh, well, we hope to cover as much as we can of that today. 
I want you to imagine with me, if you would, being 13 years old. You're 13 years old and you're going to a friend's house to get away from problems at home. And while you're at your friend's house, uh, not your friend, but your friend's mother walks up to you and she's got something in her hand and she says, this will make you feel better. And she hands you a handful of pills. And uh, you're 13 years old and you, and you say, well, you know, this is coming from somebody that, 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 I, that I trust, somebody that, that is supposed to watch out for me. And may, maybe she's right. Maybe this will make me feel better. And so what you do, you, you start taking those pills and, and it, it, it sets the course of your life on a downhill spiral. And if you fast forward nine years and, and, and imagine you, you just OD'd on heroin for the second time. And it took 17 doses of, of Narcan to revive you. You were literally dead. And they, they brought you back to, to life and they resuscitated you. And, and just a few days later, after you get out of the, the hospital, you're, you're sitting in a church building and you're talking to somebody you don't even know. And you ask the question, why wasn't anybody there to tell me when, when, when that mother of my friend handed me those pills, why wasn't anybody there to say, don't do that? It will destroy your life. Those are hard questions. And the young person that, that I'm asking you to imagine yourself as, his name is Jamie. And he was sitting in our church building this past Wednesday. Last Friday, a week ago yesterday, he had OD'd for the second time. You know, I, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I, I'm just stating a, a reality of what's happening every day, multiple times a day in our state. Ohio has, has the, the worst drug crisis when it, when it comes to opioid use and comes to heroin especially. We have the worst problem in the nation. And we lose about 8 to 10 people, that's a conservative number, 8 to 10 people a day to overdose. That's more, that's the, the leading cause of accidental death, that, that's more than, than traffic fatalities. And it's, it's beyond epidemic. One out of every four people in this state is affected personally by addiction. Whether it's themselves or whether it's a family member, someone they know, but they're affected personally. I serve a town of, of 3,600 people within the corporation limit. And last year in 2016, out of those 3,600 people, we had 1,552 drug-related arrests. So many in our, especially in our rural churches, in a rural setting, smaller communities, if you walk outside your church building and you would shout, there would be many people struggling with addictions that could hear the sound of your voice. At True North and Minerva, if I walk outside of our church building and I shout, there are 40 to 50 people struggling with addiction that would hear that shout. 
Our jails and our prisons, they're full. The temporary band-aid fixes of, of secular treatment and recovery are barely making a dent in the problem. But you see, there, there is an answer. There is an answer. We, we, we've always had the answer. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And the question is, what are we doing with the answer? How do we create a bridge between the problem and the answer? Jesus. The church is to be that bridge. The church is to be that bridge. See, it can't just be church, you know, let, let's have a church service and let's, let's hope that, that people struggling with addictions will come to our church service. No, it, it doesn't really work that way. It's the church willing to get down in the trenches, to get dirty, to, to, to walk alongside people struggling with addiction, walk alongside their families. You know, it's amazing. We start caring for people struggling with addiction. And you know what happens? Their families are drawn to us. Their families are drawn to us. So how do we bridge that, that gap between the problem and Jesus? One of the, the best ways that I know, the, the, the best recovery, Jesus-based recovery, I know, is a ministry called Teen Challenge. Ohio is blessed with five residential centers in Ohio. Five. Some are for men, some are for women. But here's a, a very sad statistic. Most of these centers are not full. They have beds available. They have, they have room for, for more people to come and receive the, you know, the recovery that they desperately need. To come and find what Jesus can do in their life. I know of one center in particular, they have 50 beds available today. 50 beds. And with a problem like we have, with the heroin epidemic as bad as it is in this state, we cannot afford to have empty beds in those centers. You know, that's, that's, that's an atrocity. You say, Pastor Dave, why, why do we have empty beds? Well, one of the reasons is by the time a person struggling with addiction is finally hitting rock bottom, because how many of you know that they, they have to be ready? They have to want help. If they don't want help, we can't help them. But the ones that are ready, the ones that want help, if, if they want to go into, into Teen Challenge, we as a church, we have to find ways to, to get them there. It costs Teen Challenge roughly about $1,500 a month for each person at the centers. And, and many of the, of the Teen Challenge centers, regardless of, of their ability to pay or their ability of their families to, to contribute to that, they will say, yes, you can come. Thank God for that. Because so many of these strug people struggling with addiction, by the time they're willing to, to get help, by the time they say willing to say, yes, I'll, I'll go, they burn all their bridges. They burn out their families. Their families are like, you know, I'm, I'm not throwing any more money at you. And they have nothing. But if we as a, the church can come alongside our Teen Challenge Centers 
it, it would be amazing of what Jesus could do in so many lives to get so many more people into recovery. It's not treatment, it's recovery. Imagine what it would look like. Some are. Some are, but we, we have over 280, just, let's, let's just use the Assembly of God churches. We have over 280 Assembly of God churches in, in the state. What would it look like if every church supported Teen Challenge? How many more individuals could, could be enter recovery in the Teen Challenge program? You know, that, that's just the, 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 I'll say it like this, that's probably the, the cleanest and easiest way to get involved in, in this. Another thing, you know, we want to give you actionable strategies today. And, and somebody raised a question and said, you know, we want to do more than just pray about it, but that's true. But as communities, as churches, that's the first thing we got to do. We have to pray. We have to pray because we can counsel out. We, you know, there are secular uh, recovery and, and treatment options out there that are trying to counsel this epidemic out. They're trying to treat this epidemic out. They're, they're trying to substitute, uh, drug this epidemic out. But there are certain things they have to be prayed out and cast out in the name of Jesus. That's right. And, and that, that's just the truth. It starts with prayer. Get your pastors together. Get, get the churches and your communities together and start praying against addiction. Start praying against these things. You know, the Ohio Attorney General, he is begging for the church's help in this. Because he realized we're not making any headway with what we have going now. He's begging for the church's help. Talk to your uh, area law enforcement. Talk to the judges in your counties. Introduce them to Teen Challenge. We found out where we were. The judges didn't even know what Teen Challenge was. Our jails are full. Our prisons are full. And there's a residential, Jesus-based residential recovery center within the short drive of, of our county that has 50 beds available. And the judges say, I've never heard of that. And now we're starting to see the judges doing alternative sentencing where they put them into Teen Challenge program. It's powerful. Invite a Teen Challenge ministry team to come into your church. These are actionable steps. If you want to see your church get excited about what Jesus can do and those struggling with addictions, what He can do in their life, invite a ministry team from a Teen Challenge Center in. It's powerful. It's powerful. Personally, what we can do as individuals, being the church, starts with helping just one person. I told you, we, Jamie, the one, the, the young man who overdosed last week, and I talked to him this week. Yesterday morning at 9 o'clock, members of our team took him up to Ohio Valley Teen Challenge Center. And, and that's amazing. And, and his, his last Facebook post from one of our team members' phones he said, I got it confirmed. I'll be going into a 12 to 14 month residential rehab tomorrow at 9. For everyone that has supported me through this, thank you for the, from the bottom of my heart. 
going to be a long journey, but next time you'll see me, I'll be the better man my family needs. All glory goes to God on this one. Love you all. That's a miracle. Going from being dead on Friday to Jesus-based recovery yesterday. That's a miracle. So how do we bring hope and healing within reach? We're blessed today. We have Rachel Leonard and Mike Leonard from the Teen Challenge of the Firelands, the, the Women's Center in, in Willard, Ohio, with us. And I'm going to ask Rachel to come, and, and she's going to go over some of the underlying causes as well as, as how to help a person struggling with addiction because a lot of times we don't know what to do. If someone came to you and said, I, I'm struggling, what would you do? So that's one of the first things we need to do. We need to know what to do and how to relate to those who, who are struggling in this. Rachel. Thanks, Dave, for your heart. It's really awesome to have a pastor out there working to bring people in, too. Um, see if I can figure this out. Okay. Obviously, I don't use this very often. Okay. So... I've been working about 10 years, um, maybe 12, in just personal relationships with people who are coming out of addiction. So I tried in my non-scientific way to put together statistics, and I am not a statistician. My, my high school teacher told me, you're going to be a minister, don't worry about it. And this is proof. It took me, I tried for like an hour. I was like, I'm done. I'm just going to tell people what I know. So let me tell you... Um, First of all, how many of you have heard that addiction is a disease? Have you guys heard that? Anybody heard that? Okay. I would say to you, I disagree. If it's a disease, I want to tell you, it's not terminal. You know, just like someone can get cancer and they can go have treatment, just like someone can tear their ACL and get it restored, someone who has a struggle with addiction, they can get free. However, it's not easy. They have to make a commitment. They have to give everything over to Christ. All the statistics out there without Jesus, it's like really grim. Like maybe 15% succeed without Christ. And so what I tell my students all the time is that addiction is not a disease. It's a coping mechanism for our sin nature. We've all got sin. And we all feel shame and pain in our sin, right? We walk around hiding, covering up for the stuff we don't like about ourselves because we have a sin nature. We're all, we have brokenness. And addiction is, is a way for us to deal with the stress, the pain, and the condemnation that we deal with on a daily basis for our sin nature. That's what I told my students because to me, that lines up with what God has shown me to be true. I want to tell you that a brain, our brain is an organ. So often, especially, I grew up in a Pentecostal world where oftentimes the message was, oh, you don't need a counselor, Jesus will fix it. You know, the reality is Jesus will, but he might use a counselor to help your brain get healed. So what I want to say is, a lot of times your people in addiction are going to need to go through a process of healing their brain, like the, the organ itself. Um, I've been getting into this lately as I'm preparing to work with students. So many of them have dealt with trauma. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But I want to say this to you. If you can do nothing else with someone who's in addiction, start by telling them you are not an addict. You struggle with addiction. An addict, when, when you call someone an addict, you're labeling them with hopelessness. 
Tell them that they're a creation made by God with a purpose. Start there. Look them in the eye and tell them with all sincerity that they were created on purpose. Their life is not hopeless. They can overcome this. Start there. Don't let them believe the lie anymore. Because I'll tell you, the addiction community without Christ is going to tell them, just get ready to die. It's a slow process of death. Basically, that's what it's just hopeless. So, I want to get to the root cause. A lot of times addiction is this nebulous thing. We can't get our arms around it. When we think of addiction, we think of the news reports. 14 overdoses in one weekend. The, the stars football player who suddenly we find out he's got this terrible addiction problem because he robbed his aunt, grandma, and uncle all at the same time. And he's sitting in jail. That's what we think of when we think of addiction. But below the surface, most often there's a hurting person who's wounded and they're trying to deal. Okay? So I would start off by saying, I talked about trauma. Trauma is basically a wound. It's, it's something that happens in our brain. And so often I'll, I'll start off, you know, why did you use? What was your big thing? Oh, I was bored. Well, no, okay, I get it. You were bored. But what was, what was more than that? What was below the surface? And you start to hear their stories. Um, I've got, I can tell you, almost 50% of my students that I've worked with, they have had some kind of an accident, like a literal physical accident, injury. They have surgeries. They have chronic pain, so they take pills. And the pills are too expensive, so they end up on heroin. And it's real. That's a real pain. Like, they feel it. Um, So they're trying to cope with that pain. Um, And then trauma can look like something like having an abortion. A lot of times people don't realize that there's going to be a trauma that happens to their body, their mind. Um, It can look like being taken out of your parents' home forcibly when you're a little kid and all of your world is turned upside down. That's a wound that marks you for the rest of your life. Um, Trauma can look like um, losing losing a a loved one. Slow down, Rachel. Um, (laughs) I can't tell you how many people I talk to who have come in and found a loved one dead. I mean, sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes it was on purpose. And that marks somebody. Imagine it happening more than once. Maybe it's your son and then it's your stepson. Maybe it's your mom when you're nine. So that changes who somebody is. It changes the way they see the world. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about trauma. Um, I mentioned boredom. But I would say boredom oftentimes... um, With trauma, okay, our brains are made to think really good thoughts all the time and to process and to, you know, be scientific and to read and think about history and culture and problem solving. But when you have trauma, okay, so you think about all this stuff and then we only think about survival like minimal amount of time. That's our normal brain. But when trauma enters in, it flips. And so we're living in survival mode all the time. How do I survive? How do I get food? How do I get love? How do I get... How do I just stay alive? And so someone's brain who's had this trauma, they're literally thinking about survival. And there's an adrenaline that comes with that. And it keeps them alive. And they're looking for the next high. And it may not even be drugs, but they're just looking for that because that's what they've known as reality. And so that's where the boredom comes in. When there's not that adrenaline, they're looking for it. So a lot of times, that's where you'll see people start using as well, okay? I'm going to try to move on from that. But um, you'll, I would say this too. 
there's a lot of demonic oppression that happens in people's lives. The, word, the root word for pharmacy is pharmakeia in the Greek. And the word pharmakeia is also the word for witchcraft in the Greek. It's the word for mind-altering. And so when we use mind-altering drugs, we open ourselves up to darkness. We make ourselves susceptible. So a lot of times, people have darkness move in on them when they're just trying to survive. And then they become oppressed, sometimes possessed. And so there's a lot of deliverance that sometimes has to take place on a spiritual level. Um, I'm a pastor's kid, and I've worked with a lot of pastor's kids and missionary's kids that have addiction issues. Church kids. And uh, the question often is, why them? They grew up in church. What's wrong with them? And a lot of times, that even is connected to trauma. They rebel against what they've been told is real because something happens that's opposite of what they've been told is supposed to happen. In my case, I was always more of a perfectionist, but my brother, he turned to drugs and alcohol after we had two church splits. And the church was really mean to my family. (laughs) So church kids and missionaries' kids and all that, they experience trauma in a, different, in a different way. Their world changes. And so there's a rebellion that happens. Like, well, that didn't work. I'm going to try this. So I would say that's a common thing I see. Um, a symptom of addiction is depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. The next thing I want to hit on, cause, especially because somebody asked the question about enabling, is codependency. In our families of origin, we all have something that's normal that's not necessarily healthy. I'm going to say that again. In our family of origin, there's always going to be something that's normal that's not necessarily healthy. So, I could talk for hours about this, but I'm going to hit on two big things. One is codependency. Have any of you heard the word codependency before? Yeah. Most of us have heard it. Most of us have no clue how to describe it. Basically, it's this. It's this idea that I am not enough without you. Without you. Like, I need you to survive and exist. You make me feel important. So, usually there's a victim, there's a bully, and there's a rescuer. And we li- those people live in this cycle. Like, someone messes up, someone else fixes the problem, and... There's this constant cycle. And a a lot of times, families who have someone who struggles with addiction, like they're constantly bailing that person out. And they don't have to feel the pain of their own addiction. They don't have to feel the problem. The family feels it for them. And so, um, that being said, at the same time, I always, I went into this business, if you will, (laughs) this ministry, thinking that all of my students would be the bullies. And then I started realizing most of them had been the rescuers a lot in their families because they also come from generational uh, addiction, generational dysfunction. Grandpa was an alcoholic, dad was an alcoholic, so I'm an alcoholic. Um, So the roles end up getting reversed in their families. They end up parenting their families, their parents, that kind of a thing. Um, The the last thing I'm going to hit on, and I'm going to give you guys a handout that has comprehensive notes because... I could be here all month and still not tell you everything I know or I've experienced, not necessarily know, um, is this. There's a lot of early and premature sexualization in families. What do I mean by that? 
molestation happens from somebody that they trust in their family. And then they go on for a season and it seems like it gets better. And then somebody else comes along and steps into that role and does it again. And there's a lie that begins to be, they begin to believe about themselves. I'm only good for this one thing. Sex equals love. And since I'm only good at this, I might as well use it to survive. And so you start to see promiscuity, you start to see prostitution, you start to see... And so what happens with that? Shame. So I would say a big root to addiction is going to be shame. It's going to be a big thing. And, and that brings me right into what I want to say to you. Where's the hope in all this? Where's the hope? And I want to say you are the hope. Jesus says that you're the hope. It's a, he says, I'm the light of the world, and then he turns around a couple chapters later and says, you're the light of the world, a city on a hill. We are the hope that people need. And I, I got to thinking about, I'm going to turn this off, I said on the line for myself. I got to thinking about the Bible, and I was like, where's addiction in the Bible? Like, did, I actually went and typed in addiction, you know, in our little fancy little app, nothing. <laughs> but I was praying, I was like, Lord, show me. And I felt like he showed me three examples in scripture of people who fit in the category of the people we want to reach. The first one is the Samaritan woman at the well. And I'm going to park here for half a second because this is where my heart is. With, with my students, I work with women. Um, all of my life, I would have to say I approached this story with a little bit of judgment towards her. Because, um, you know, Jesus says, where's your husband? And she's like, well, I don't have one. And he's like, well, you're right because you've had five and the one that you're living with is not your husband. And I always thought, well, girl, she out running around. You know, in my head I was judging her. And that's not right. But we do that. Let's just be honest. And a couple weeks ago, I was studying, and I realized something. In Jewish culture, women could not divorce their husbands. So what Jesus was saying was, five times, you were in a covenant relationship, and a man rejected you. And the one you're living with right now doesn't even see your worth and your value enough to make covenant with you. He just wants your body. That's what he was saying. And I'm going, oh my goodness, <sighs> like, how did I miss that? But Jesus, like, I'm going to come back to that story in a second. But he, he knew her. He understood that she needed to be seen. The next one that God took me to was the Gerasene demoniac. Jesus went across the sea. He said, let's go to the other side. And the disciples are like, yay, we're going to have a vacay. And then they get there and they realize, um, this dude's crazy. Like, we came to this guy who's hanging out in the middle of the graveyard, breaking his own chains because he's and cutting himself and all this craziness, and no one wants to talk to him. And his name is Legion. He doesn't even have a name. He's labeled by his demons. Hello, addict. Labeled by his demons. So God... God saw him, and he crossed over, just like he went all the way through Judea to get to Samaria, to get to this woman. Finally, the last thing is Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and he talks about this guy beaten up. You know, we know the story. In all those stories, what I noticed was somebody crossed over to them. I was talking to my students this week about what I was going to talk about, and they said, you know, I wish that someone would know that we want hope, but we're not going to come in the door. We're too scared. Like, every time I went to church, I just felt like I wasn't accepted. Like, no one saw me. Like, they were trying to avoid me because I was going to ask them for money. 
I have shame in my heart. That's shame talking. That's not necessarily what churches do, but that's how they feel. So what I want to challenge you to do, the first thing is to look for people that you can see that are rejected, that are labeled by their demons, people who have been left for dead, and approach them. Because that, in all those three instances, someone approached them, they looked them in the eye, they talked to them, they offered them compassion, and they offered them what they had, which was themselves. They got involved. And here's the last... Well, there's two more things, and I'll be done. The last thing I want to say about that little area is this. In two of those three stories, because the third one was Jesus telling a parable, the first two stories, if you look really closely, after they were transformed by the love of Christ, setting them free, the very next thing that happened was they went back to their communities and they told everyone they knew about what Jesus had done in their life. And I'm going to tell you what. You want people who are set free from addiction on your team. They are not broken. When they go through a process of healing, they are powerful people. (laughs) They're going to be hardworking, especially if they come through Teen Challenge because we make them work and they hate it. But they'll be hardworking. Most of them are leaders. I mean, come on. If you're running the streets, you've got to know how to get around and work with people. They're gifted and discernment. (laughs) They can spot a fake from a mile away. (laughs) They have faith to believe that anyone can be set free because they were set free. And if God can do it for them, they'll do it for somebody else. And they have a story that's going to set somebody else free. So, you want them on their team. But what are they on your team? What do they need when they come back to your church? They need someone who's going to take them seriously. They need someone who's going to challenge them and say, look, I know you just spent a year or however much... Um, let's come on, let's keep growing in character. Let's keep growing in your faith. Don't come sit on a pew. Let's grow. They need someone who's going to mentor them, who's going to get involved. Most of these people have felonies and they have past. They need someone who will help them learn the ropes in a new town, a new city. They need someone who will come alongside them and walk with them. The last thing I want to do is share a story with you. And this is more on the prevention side. My story. When I was growing up, I grew up around a lot of people in addiction. But I always thought, I'm going to go to China. I'm going to go to Africa. I'll go anywhere but Kentucky, please, because that's where I grew up. And um, I didn't want to work in the church. That was not my plan, because I told you, I experienced a lot of pain in the church. But God started calling me back to this country and calling me to broken people. And it was the summer before I graduated from Southeastern. I, was, I had all kinds of Bible college knowledge. I was going to change the world. Until he brought this little girl, 16 years old, into my life. Her name was Caitlin. I went to camp with her as her counselor, and I watched her give her life to Jesus. And it was like the kind where stuff comes out. You know, that's the kind of salvation this girl had. It was deliverance salvation. And it wasn't done. The deliverance was still going on. But this girl, she was so street. Like, she wanted people to know she was hard, like the way she walked around. And she carried herself, and she didn't let anyone close to her heart. And here's what happened. I started getting to know her that summer. Um, I realized she, a couple weeks before camp, had woken up next to the love of her life, dead in her arms after an OD. Her, Her mother had left her at age six to take care of all of her other siblings, And she had lived in and out of group homes for like 10 years, off and on. And then she had just started living with her grandmother. 
This girl was so angry. <laughs> she was so angry. She, it was unbelievable. And I was hanging out with her. Just, you know, I'm going to change the world. And you know what? Every time I told her stuff I knew, she'd get more mad. And sometimes I thought she'd punch me in the face. Here's what happened. Jesus came to me and said, walk with her and hold her hand. Just walk with her and hold her hand. Just tell her that I love her. Encourage her. Tell her when she has a choice to make. Don't make the choice for her. Tell her. Tell her. Keep telling her the truth. Fast forward through a lot of mess that she, she started living for God, but then she had some spirals in between. Today she's married to a guy with a similar past as her. They have five sons, and they're all living for God. Um, and I would say I didn't do all that, but what I learned was how much there is below the surface of someone struggling with addiction. And they, that they just need someone to care and to be a genuine friend to them and to lead them to Christ. So that's what I've got to say. And I'll pass it over to the man who has more wisdom than me. Sorry. Dave, I think I'm going to ask you to do like the priest. You know, they put a rope around his ankle when he went in. When I run out of time, just yank me, okay, and we'll quit. Um, I've, I've, since 1981, I've been in leadership at five teen challenges, pastored three churches. I came out of drugs and alcohol, uh, was radically discipled, and uh, I quickly succumbed to the suggestion that the church didn't care, the church was dead, because a lot of my students would leave Teen Challenge and go back to the local church and say, they're not as on fire as we are at Teen Challenge. And then I became a pastor. And I saw that the church does care, but we have different roles, different resources, and different relationships with addicts. Um, I want to say, uh, you know, like Teen Challenge, if you look at uh, uh, the church as a hospital, Teen Challenge is like the intensive care unit. People that are in the trauma that she talked about really need off the street and need sheltered for a season. That's what happens at Teen Challenge. And, uh, you know, at the church, you have them a couple hours a week. We have them 24-7, 365. We can pretty much do what we want to do with them as long as it's ethical and legal. (laughs) And uh, we have some pretty intense things. And I'll talk about a day in the life of Teen Challenge if they don't pull my rope first. Um, But I want to say this. You know, Dave cited some things that you're already aware of, how severe the problem is right here in the Buckeye State. Uh, But we don't need to cower in fear and fret and sweat and cry and moan. Because I really believe this is, this is the greatest opportunity of my lifetime for the church to show the relevance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been at two or three of those meetings with Mike DeWine's office that Dave was talking about. And they're literally begging the faith community to help resolve this problem. We don't know what to do. What can you folks do? Obviously, they can't fund Teen Challenge because of all the government bureaucracy on faith. Uh, But my mind goes back to an artist when I was a new Christian named Steve Camp. Some of you may know that name. And and he had a song called Run to the Battle. And and it inspired me early on. And he sang another song, Don't Tell Them Jesus Loves Them Unless You're Ready to Love Them Too. And those songs set my heart on fire back in the early days. And, And my mind goes also to 1 Samuel chapter 14. You know, uh, the Philistines were huffing and puffing and the Jews were clamoring in fear like we're doing in the church today over the drug problem. And Saul's son, Jonathan, 
says to his armor bearer, uh, let's go down to the garrison of the Philistines and see what we can do. God's able to save by many or by few. And in today's world, he would have said, dude, let's roll. I'm ready to go. And, and they went down. He said, my heart's with you. And they took care of a big group of people in the name of the Lord. And what I want to say, and some of you have asked the question, what can we do until somebody gets that same spirit in them that was in Jonathan, the spirit of God, uh, things aren't going to change. But if you can go back to your Jerusalem, go back to your community and say, bless God in the name of Jesus, this curse is going to stop in my community. I'm going to stand up and be counted. I'm going to find other like-minded people. And together we're going to make a difference for the glory of God and for the people that are statistics today. I believe there's other people with hearts like I've heard here already today. People are looking for somebody to partner with. Somebody wants to be the armor bearer, whatever. And we get a few people together who cares what church they go to as long as they're not preaching heresy you know let's come together with people in other denominations and do a work for the glory of god and i know you're probably thinking he isn't supposed to preach he's supposed to give us actionable strategies okay i'll transition okay there's four things that i'm trying to get them in in a hurry the first thing i would share with you is and dave's already said is intercession And I'm not talking about on Sunday morning when the pastor has his pastoral prayer, when he prays for Uncle Freddie's broken toe and Aunt Susie sniffles, oh, and bless the drug addicts. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an intentional, focused, weekly or twice weekly prayer meeting of concerned people in your Jerusalem that are come together and say, we're going to storm heaven until there's a breakthrough. We're going to call upon God together and believe God to change this situation, to give us actionable strategies, to give us a breakthrough, to give us favor, to give us key people to turn this thing around. The devil's not going to win in my town anymore. And I'm going to give you an illustration that's, that, that's part of my life journey. I moved back to Ohio after being in Kentucky for 20 years. I thought the thing fell off. Uh, but I was in Clay County, Kentucky. Um, they were having this problem in 2002, 2003. And they were literally burying the next generation. And at the same time, a lot of the parents were dying. One local elementary school in Manchester, Kentucky, reported that 60% of the kids had buried one or more parent. That's how bad it was with Oxycontin and Percocet and all that down in the hills of Appalachia. And the church people came together across denominational lines. There were 66 different local churches represented. Pastors, lay people, and said, enough is enough. The devil can't have our community anymore. And they decided to do just what I'm preaching to you. They had a weekly, they met sometimes twice a week, prayer meeting. And it's kind of funny because they thought, how are we going to do this? We've got so many faith traditions here. We've got Baptists, we've got Methodists, we've got Lutherans. What are we going to do? And the Reformed Baptist preacher, Ken Bowen, stood up and he goes, I know what we'll do. We'll pray Pentecostal style. And they go, what's that? He goes, everybody just lift your voice and cry out to God together at the same time. However God leads you, just pray. Let's make a joy. Let's cry out to God. And here's a Reformed Baptist. And then the Reformed Baptist gets a vision, a dream from God. If the Pentecostal had got it, they'd have discarded it and said he's just a crazy charismatic. But a Reformed Baptist preacher said, God said we're to have a march in Manchester, Kentucky. 
and they went on a cold, rainy day in March of 2004, I think. 5,000 people marched down through town, blowing shofars, carrying banners, saying, drug dealers, get saved or get busted. We've had enough of this. Jesus intervened in our town. The drug dealers were sitting on the side of the road, taunting them as they were doing it. And unbeknownst to this prayer group that had been praying for months and months, the feds were ready to swoop down on that town. DEA and FBI came in, and most of the elected officials in the county went to federal prison for corruption. And I want to tell you, wherever there's drugs, there's corruption. So let's begin with our first actionable strategy is to intercede for your community. The second thing I would say, is it's already been alluded to, is identification. We need to create a culture that's friendly to people that are in this struggle. What's that look like? I don't know. What's it look like in your town? A coffee shop. Maybe you could tell you, you know, how we go to Perkins and have church fellowships and eat until we're pigged out. You know, you could do that in the back room somewhere and have a coffee gathering, whatever, with people, you know, reserve a room. Have people from the Methodist church, the Baptist church, whatever, who have a like heart like yours. Create a culture where people can feel comfortable. They're not going to be judged, as she said. Create a safe place and get it out on the streets. Hey, we're here to help, man. You matter to us. You're not a statistic. You're not a problem. We love you in the name of Jesus. And um, there's, a, there's a program that Dave didn't mention called Living Free Communities. It's It's... The curriculum was devised by Assemblies of God ministers in Chattanooga, Tennessee several years ago. And they have Christ-centered 12-step groups called Stepping into Freedom. And they have a Christ-centered <coughs> concerned persons groups for family members that are affected by this, like Rachel said, about codependency and the pain and suffering, how to best deal with this problem. So, you know... It's relatively inexpensive. I mean, you can rent a community room or sign up for one at a library, a bank somewhere. Get other churches to partner with you and set one of these things up in your town. Don't make it a tool for church growth or the people, like she said, they'll smell it a mile away and they won't come back. Don't turn it into a a preaching series or a lecture series or a, a Sunday school class. Make it a facilitated group operated by people baptized in the love of Jesus that are as good a listeners as they are talkers, that will go and connect with these people, look them in the eyeball, cry with them, weep with those that weep, and, and offer options and suggestions to those people. The next thing I want to say, once you get something, some kind of a, a identification community going, go for intervention. You know, when you walk into ER, what do they do? They triage, right? Isn't that how you say that word, triage? And they start to assess how severe is this problem. You know, some people like me, I was a teenage alcoholic and a drug abuser, serious drug abuser. I got saved and radically discipled. I didn't go through a program. <laughs> Pastor Tom and I were in the same church uh, back in the, in the 70s. And, uh, and then uh, some people just need to go to these groups and, and, and get helped and then become a, a, an agent for change for others by changing roles from being the receiver to the dispenser of this truth and, and sharing the, of the burden of others. The third step would be some people need to go to Teen Challenge. We've got a number of girls in our beds that have died more than once. You know, their, their case is severe. They need to go to intensive care immediately. And... Um, The last thing I mentioned, because I know we're running out of time, is investment, and it's already been alluded to. There's a cost to buy this material for living free, and there's a cost to come to Teen Challenge, as as David said. But, uh, you know, we are 
part of U.S. missions of the Assemblies of God. Your church could give to all six centers in Ohio if you wanted to, you know, just like you give to missionaries in Tanzania or Timbuktu or whatever. Or, as Rachel alluded to, if you're helping somebody, uh, you don't just hand them, here, call Teen Challenge, Bubba. Don't do that. Sit there with them while they call Teen Challenge. Help them because they're confused. They don't even know their last name half the time. And then when they need a physical, if they need a TB test, whatever, take them to get it done because they're going to they're gonna lollygag around before long. They're spiked up and gone again. So walk them through the process. There is a cost, as he alluded to. We... We, we have an intake fee of $1,000 and 550 a month in student fees. We waive it more than we get it, to be honest with you. But couldn't your local church sponsor or scholarship that person that you're passionately tied in with? You know, I, even if it's a portion of that, whatever you can do. We raise money for kids to go on trips to Nicaragua or whatever. Couldn't we raise money to help that person that's dying, that's been found with, twice dead? You know, and and I'm trying to say, these are some actionable things that you and I can do. Finally, a day in the life of our center, as Rachel said, they don't sleep all day and lay around. Uh, And and the life transformation, Pastor Tom sees them when we're in his church, the change in these women. People come in from secular programs and government agencies, and they go, where are the drug addicts when they're on a tour? And I go, over there, there. What? They don't look like drug addicts. They don't smell like drug addicts. They don't look miserable. They don't stink. I said, they, they've, been, they've been changed, transformed by the power of God. We believe the application of biblical principles will lead to life transformation. These girls get up at 6.30 in the morning. They do devotions. They clean up their area. They have breakfast, and they go to class. We have a learning center with library desk. Sarah knows she's been there. And... Um, the girls all start with salvation, uh, basic understanding that they need a relationship with Jesus Christ. But then Rachel and our staff devise learning contracts for them to target whatever the significant problem, the underlying root of their addiction is. They, they do scripture memory not just to so they can blab it out, but so they can apply it to their life. We've been given permission by Bill Gothard, which is something from the past, but uh, to take his character qualities and adapt it down to about a sixth grade reading level to help these people learn responsibility, thoroughness, diligence, punctuality, the things that caused them to fail all their life because they weren't responsible. And we have group classes. These girls are in some sort of spiritual instruction almost five hours a day, be it chapel, prayer times, classes, whatever, and they work four or five hours a day. If you leave Heartland or you go into Heartland sometime, look around, it's clean. Our girls cleaned it for you. Our girls clean Heartland every time there's a flip in groups down there. We do lots of things. Our girls are today at the IX Center in Cleveland doing the car show. That's a fundraiser they're doing because we don't have enough money to pay our bills, to be honest with you. And, and Teen Challenge Centers across the state do this with our senior students, do various things to be self-funded. We're working on piecework projects so we can do things right in our local facility to help offset the cost of these mostly indigent and under-resourced students. Hey, I know I've blabbed. We've talked 100 miles an hour, but hope we've answered some of your questions. I'm going to turn it back to Dave and uh, answer any questions that maybe we've avoided or not gotten to. Oh, by the way, I have handouts and Rachel has handouts. Mine, uh, I made it. Um, I have handouts that, that has all the, the contact information for the men's and the women's team challenges in Ohio. And it's a little cover letter about the stats they have referenced.
couple things. A uh, question I want to hit on, how can the churches uh, help get involved? Uh, those of you that have provided us with your email address, uh, I'll be sending you uh, some information on Living Free. Living Free is the, the community ministry. And uh, coming up this, this summer, we will be having, uh, the plan is to have trainings uh, by area or at least by regions to where we can train churches how to go back to their community and partner with other churches in their community to establish these living free communities. So the, the, the sad statistic is only about 11% of those struggling with addiction can or will go into residential treatment. Okay, so what, what do we do with the other 89% that, that won't go? We, we have to have this non-residential recovery in our communities. And, and we're going to do our very best to provide you with that information to how to take back the, the, how to take this information back to your churches, back to your pastors, and uh, partner with other churches and pastors so, so those living free communities can be established in your community. I know we've said a lot today, and, and believe me, it's very difficult to, to communicate the passion and communicate the, the need the need that, that needs uh, that, to happen, the, the solutions that need to happen in our communities in, in 40 to 45 to, to an hour. But uh, we are going to send you more information. And I, I just want to, to pray over you and bless you and say thank you for choosing this session. Thank you for your heart, for your community. And, and that's what it involves. And it involves helping, just helping, start out by helping one person. Jamie, the one who, who overdosed for the, for the second time, he said, when he, when he got out of the hospital, he said, you know, a year ago I was at a house and my friend was there, his name was Brian, and, and this guy came and picked up Brian and took him somewhere, and I saw Brian last week, and Brian is completely and radically changed. I want that guy, I want to find that guy, and I want to go to, to where Brian went. Well, that guy was me. I picked up Brian in, in 2015. Brian, Brian recovered. Okay? Brian's not an addict. Brian is recovered. And it's a ripple effect. That's right. The people struggling with addiction are seeing they did it. Look what Jesus did in their lives. I want to do that too. He says, I want to find that guy. I want him to take me to wherever Brian went. That was his, that was his, his thing in the community. Start with one person. Right. You can do this. Right. You can do this. And you can make a difference. Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus. Lord, I bless each person here. Lord, I bless them with the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, if you are for us, no one can be against us. Lord, when we take a stand in your name in our communities, the enemy cannot stand before us. And Lord, I pray that 
those in, in this room today would, would go up back to their communities, would go back to their churches and say, we can make a difference. We can put an end to this problem in our community and we can see the power of Jesus change and transform lives and families and generations for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.